Live from beyond the Beltway, this is Eric Cohn filling in for Bruce Dumont with our weekly analysis of national politics, featuring occasional injections of rumor and innuendo, all offered up by our panel of political insiders, pundits, power brokers, public servants, professors, and most importantly, plain-speaking Americans from coast to coast. Tonight, featuring commentary by conservative Jonathan Greenberg, Democrat Patrick Hanley, and liberal conservative Dan Huger. Our program tonight coming to you from our home base, AM 560, The Answer, WIND Radio in beautiful Elk Grove Village, Illinois. As you're listening to this program, it is Christmas Eve all across the land, but this program was pre-taped. So sadly, no phone calls this evening unless you can invent a DeLorean time machine or other kind of time machine to come back in time and present us the questions as we're recording this show. Um, but then again, if you were able to do that, I suppose you'd already be here and we'd already know. So never mind. Uh, but we hope you enjoy the program and enjoy the conversation. Where I want to start this week is I'm going to read to you from a article in the New York Times that appeared on Tuesday, December 19th. Here's how it starts. Voters broadly disapprove of the way President Biden is handling the bloody strife between Israelis and Palestinians. A new New York Times Sena College poll has found with younger Americans far more critical than older voters of both Israel's conduct and of the administration's response to the war in Gaza. Now, I do want to come back to the Israel-Gaza portion of this. This is not the only poll that is out recently on perspectives on that conflict. But where I want to go first as I jump a little forward in this New York Times piece, overall, registered voters say they favor Mr. Trump over Mr. Biden in next year's presidential election by two percentage points, 46% to 44%. The president's job approval rating has slid to 37%, down two points from July. This also comes in the wake of a slew of swing state polling that has found President Biden trailing former President Trump uh, in really all of the swing states. Uh, in Pennsylvania, Trump uh, 46 over Biden, 44%. Michigan, Trump 46, Biden 42 Wisconsin, Trump 45, Biden 41. Nevada, Trump 47, Biden 44. Arizona, Trump 46, Biden 42. North Carolina, Trump 49, Biden 40. So, Patrick, I want to go to you first. On a scale of 1 to 10, with 1 being you're absolutely calm, 10 being in complete existential panic, how are you as a Democrat feeling right now looking at these poll results? Thanks, Eric. I, I would say I'm a 3.5, and I, I I'll tell you why. I think we are at a low point in the president's approval rating, uh, in part because we've had a really tough economic comeback following COVID, but all the signs are that the economy has turned around now. And I think a lot of that hasn't come down to folks by way of prices or wages, but that's something that we're going to see continue into the new year as real wages outpace inflation. Uh, I also think that the, the president's campaign hasn't really started up, so they haven't been able to tee up the contrast between the president and President Trump. And so when people think in the ether about Joe Biden, uh, they're not super happy about it. They cite his age. They cite, uh, you know, complicated events abroad, but they haven't yet put that in contrast with the alternative. I mean, the president always says, don't compare me to the almighty, compare me to the alternative. And 
you know, in some trick of cosmic irony, I think the 2024 election will be the election of that slogan. Jonathan, I'm going to go to you next. From a conservative perspective, uh, feel free to weigh in on how you're feeling on all this polling result data in general. But based on what Patrick just said there, um, one of the things from Trump that got buried in recent days because of his predilection to say things that sound rather crazy to people is him kind of crystallizing a campaign slogan for 2024, which was better off with Trump. And looking at this from my perspective, that's not the worst slogan that he could come up with because I think that's probably the best play that he has. He's, you know, he, he's going to have a hard time downplaying a lot of the the crazy stuff that people are going to have to talk about and are going to want to talk about, plus all of the uh, the indictments that he has to deal with. But trying to remind people of, hey, you liked the economy for those four years. Things were going pretty good until everything got wacky with COVID. Don't you want that environment back? So feel free to, to weigh in on, on any of that. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so I, I think that um, the good news for Patrick's side of the aisle is that Republicans are, it, it appears, overwhelmingly likely to renominate Donald Trump. I think if, if conservatives were going to, were able to put forward a normal candidate, uh, the Democrats would be in a lot of trouble right now. Um, but I don't think we're going to do that. I think we're going to renominate Donald Trump. And at some point, it'll be Trump versus Biden, and Trump will be opening his mouth multiple times a day, and it'll be wall-to-wall coverage of whatever nonsense Donald Trump says, and people will remember all the stuff that they didn't like about Donald Trump. I think it's very easy when he's been relatively quiet, which he has been, uh, to forget about all of the chaos and craziness uh, that followed him through four years in the White House. I think the likeliest outcome is that Democrats come home. Um, I, I, you know, I, I do think, and I, I want to say this, because I know we're going to talk about the specific issue, and I want to get saying something nice about the president out of the way now, so I don't have to say it later. Um, I think Joe Biden has been a profile in courage uh, for the last couple of months. I really do. I, and I mean that sincerely. Um, I think that uh, his base is not with him on the White House's, uh, or at least big parts of his base aren't with him on his response to uh, the, uh, the situation between uh, Israel and Hamas. And I think what he's done has been very brave and uh, at least so far uh, pretty good and um, certainly more than I, w- I expected from him. And I'm, I'm very grateful for that. And I think it's very brave of him. And so, uh, you know, I don't think that those people in his base are likely to stay away forever uh, when there's a, a clear choice between four more years of Donald Trump or an imperfect Joe Biden. I think they probably come home. I want to get my uh, friend Dan Huger and, and Acton Institute colleague Dan Huger, although I will note that we are speaking our own individual opinions and not those of the Acton Institute in this conversation. But Dan, the, it strikes me that um, the best candidate for both of these parties is generic Republican or generic Democrat. The, the problem is that person doesn't actually <laughs> exist for either side, right? I mean, they exist. Um, Andy Bashir in Kentucky exists. Um, there are there are Republican equivalents, uh, although they are dwindling. Um, but there are, you know, Asa Hutchinson is still in this race. Um, Didn't he drop? Is he? I no, thought he had dropped he out. Is still, I mean, he is in, still. He has his one percent, and he is going to roll. He with is. It. He is still in the race from an academic perspective. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, so you you have <laughs> these people. Voters don't want them. Yeah. I mean, yeah. The primary voters don't want them. Now, 20% of Americans vote in primary elections. 
Now, Dan, I, uh, I do want to interrupt you there because we are coming up on a break, but I do appreciate you reminding us of the existence of, uh, of Asa Hutchinson because I think it is something that would be very easy for people to forget that he exists along with the 1% of the vote that he has in the Republican primary. But perhaps that is where we should pick up after the break. Uh, because there is some movement, at least in the New Hampshire polling for Nikki Haley. So after the break, we will turn our attention to the Republican race and ask the question, is this a foregone conclusion that Trump is going to be the nominee? Uh, perhaps it's not, but if anything's going to happen, it's going to be in New Hampshire. But there would be some conditions that you would have to see for that to take place. All of that when we are back after the break on Beyond the Beltway. Eric Cohn filling in for Bruce Dumont. At Jersey Mike's, you can elevate any sub by getting the juice. Red wine vinegar and an olive oil blend. It's how a Jersey Mike sub gets its exquisite zing and how bites get boosted. The juice adds a certain something extra, an exclamation on top of the freshly sliced meats and toppings, the kind of exclamation you can eat. Order Jersey Mike subs on our mobile app and get delivery right to your home or pick up from your nearest Jersey Mike sub location. Jersey Mike's, be a sub above. Going back to school as a working adult doesn't mean you have to sacrifice a high-quality education. Purdue University, a top 10 public university, took its innovative thinking to a new level when it created Purdue University Global for working adults. Discover innovative, practical ways to earn your degree online and advance your career. Purdue Global has already awarded more than 1 million credits for prior learning, which means you can save nearly half the cost of your bachelor's. See how close you are to finishing your degree at purdueglobal.edu. That's purdueglobal.edu. We are back on Beyond the Beltway. Eric Cohn filling in this week for Bruce Dumont. And uh, we were talking about the general election campaign and what those numbers look like with a new New York Times poll out that shows uh, a very close race and other state polling, swing state polling, showing Trump leading Joe Biden. But why don't we turn our attention to the primary, uh, which is still not officially been settled yet. Of course, there's really no meaningful competition to Joe Biden in the Democratic primary, but there is a Republican primary going on, or is there, in, uh, I want to look at New Hampshire. So set Iowa aside for all kinds of different reasons, right? Because Iowa is, is weird and the predilection of people to disregard what happens in Iowa for the rest of the primaries is, is pretty well known. But I want to look at New Hampshire where a CBS News poll that was just recently released, taken over the dates of uh, December 8th through December 15th, uh, shows Trump with 44%, which is largely holding steady when you look at some of the others, uh, other numbers there. Nikki Haley, though, is up to 29%. So if anything was going to happen in New Hampshire, Nikki Haley does look like she is moving up. Of course, the biggest roadblock to her there is Chris Christie, who is still standing there with 10%. And it does not appear that he has any uh, uh, desire to get out of this race anytime soon. So, Jonathan, I'll come back to you. Is, is this just being way too hopeful and optimistic that something could happen in New Hampshire that starts some dominoes falling and Trump somehow does not wind up with the nomination? Yes. 
<laughs> it's being way <laughs> too hopeful. Uh, the CBS poll is an outlier. There's a Trafalgar poll from the exact same time period that has her at 18% in New Hampshire. She's getting dusted in her own state. Uh, he's yeah. almost at 50% in South Carolina, and she's in the teens. Um, like, it's over. I, I just I, – I, I would – I would love to be wrong, but it's December. Voting starts in a few weeks, and it's over. Unless something dramatic occurs to change uh, the dynamic of the race, uh, you know, it's 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 done. The Republicans are going to nominate inexplicably going to nominate Trump again, and uh, and and with it, likely, you know cost ourselves not just the White House, but uh, a shot at. A lot will lose. There, a lot of good conservatives are going to lose seats that they shouldn't lose because a lot of people don't want to vote for Trump's party. And uh, so, yeah, no, it's it's over. I, look at the just the polling data. I, we want to we look for these signs because we want them to be there. Like I desperately want us to nominate someone else. Um, and uh, you can read tea leaves if you're trying to read tea leaves that maybe this happens this way and. Every single one of Christie's voters goes to Haley in New Hampshire. But let's say she finds she squeaks out of victory in New Hampshire. She's getting boat raced in her own state right now. It's not like people don't know in South Carolina don't know who Nikki Haley is when pollsters call them. She's down 49 to like 16, 17. Yeah, Dan, I, I, I want to ask you this question. As we look at the Republican primary, there was a period of time where it seems like it was possible that someone other than Trump would be nominated. And then what happened was he was indicted in four separate cases. And the indictments seemed to ratchet up his support amongst Republicans. What, what do you make of that? So I don't, I'm not sure if it was so much the indictments as... Governor DeSantis turned out to be sort of fool's gold. Like at that time when there was a threat, there was a lot of enthusiasm for Governor DeSantis among both folks who really liked President Trump's policies, but thought he was a political liability and folks who maybe didn't like President Trump's policies, but thought it would be very, very important for the party to jettison the person of President Trump even if the sort of harsh populist rhetoric remained with Governor DeSantis. And with his campaign fading, I think that's more down to the DeSantis campaign than the indictments making it rain for President Trump. Now, President Trump's indictments are, are some of them are more serious than others. There are definitely serious indictments in there. Um, and he certainly does have a constituency in the party that is ride or die with him and they are completely content to do so. We've also have a very different party environment than we did in 2016, where a lot of these state parties have been effectively captured by folks who are enthusiasts for President Trump. Um, the landscape is much, much more challenging than it was in 2016 because of those sort of political realities of the state parties and uh, the DeSantis campaign's failure to launch or failure to capitalize on what looked like 
you know, the numbers looked very promising for a while for, for Governor DeSantis. It looked like he could maybe pull out a victory in some place like Iowa and then catapult through. And now it's looking like uh, Nikki Haley might be might overtake Governor DeSantis, uh, even in Iowa, um, which plays more to his strengths than hers. Yeah, Patrick, I'm curious for your perspective as a as a Democrat looking at this from the outside. Uh, it, it, I, I would, I guess, the question I'll put to you is: There have been concerted efforts by Democrats in recent years to help mm. push forward the most radical elements of the Republican Party in nominating contests. Uh, whereas, I think you know, I, I would like to think that Democrats would would believe that the best thing for the country would be if the Republican Party righted their own ship. Um, do, do you think yeah. that, I mean, what is, what, what is your perspective as a Democrat on this? I mean, are you hoping that it is Donald Trump because you think that presents the best opportunity for Joe Biden to be victorious next year? Or do you think it would be better off for the country if someone other than Trump were nominated? And as a result, perhaps it is a more competitive and a tighter race. Yeah, it's a great question. And we've talked about this a little bit, I think, earlier in the year on this show. Uh, and, you know, I, <laughs> I I do politics in Cook County, uh, where politics ain't beanbag. And the stakes from the Democratic perspective are so high that any House seat we can pick up, anything that can get us closer to the speakership or that can win us the Senate majority is worth pulling out all the stops for. And so the strategy that you alluded to had the Democratic Governors Association and other major funders in the Democratic Party clarifying for Republican primary voters which candidate is the most conservative with the hope that that person would be nominated. And then those candidates ended up losing pretty handily to Democrats. So the strategy did pay off. Now, I don't know what this says about me. Maybe I'm not as cutthroat as some of my Democratic colleagues. I do not want to play with the fire that is Donald Trump because I genuinely do worry about the norm breaking and about the future of the institutions were Donald Trump to win back the executive and pardon himself of 91 felonies that he might be convicted for. I think that's terrifying. So I'm not willing to do that. And I honestly, I, I don't see that among my peers in the party. There may be some on Twitter or X that are, are holding out that strange hope, but I wouldn't feel confident. I don't feel confident in a Biden-Trump rematch. I think anything could happen. And that's why I'm going to spend next year working my butt off to reelect President Biden, yeah. regardless of what happens. Well, I, I think you have highlighted one of the realities of this race, which is that the uh, th these are two incredibly disliked candidates who don't really seem to have the ability to beat the other, but they are bad enough to lose to the other person. So I think you can kind of view it as like you have two really weak incumbents who are running because, of course, Trump was president at one point and Biden is the incumbent president. In that sense, Patrick, are you surprised that Biden hasn't drawn a stronger primary challenge given how uh, his presidency so far has gone? And we're now seeing it reflected in uh, a large disapproval uh, of him showing up in the polls. It's hard to know without being in the rooms where these decisions were made. Uh, why so many party leaders decided not to get involved in a public way. Uh, I think there were opportunities throughout the year for folks uh, like several governors, uh, including one near home, to get involved, and they chose not to. 
And ultimately, we're going to see whether or not that decision was wise. I personally am of the view that primaries are broadly healthy. And if the president won a primary, I think he'd come out stronger. Uh, but clearly, that's not the decision that Democratic Party leaders took. And and here we are. And, and yeah, we have a, a an unpopular president with, I think, a very strong first term to run on and a, a number of underlying conditions that are going to get better next year. But you're right. It puts us in this in this interesting situation. Jonathan, I'm curious, curious for your reaction to that. I mean, do you think we're in any way, uh, uh, I don't want to say better off, but like, you know, we, we, we have, we're definitely not better off. We've got two really weak incumbents challenging each other. And that just kind of makes it unpredictable by the way that I look at it. No, I, I think that um, things are things are, I think things are very bad. I think things are very unhealthy in both parties. Um, I, I obviously am more concerned about the party that I used to be a member of that represents the ideological coalition on my side of things. And listen, you know, Patrick and I have discussed this uh, both privately and on this program before. I, I don't think it's the job of the Democratic Party to uh, help Republicans pull their heads out of their butts. Uh, and if they can take advantage of it, then as, as Patrick said, politics ain't beanbag. Uh, do I wish we lived in a country where people looked at politics as less zero sum? As, being, as that zero sum being less necessary? Yes, I do, but we, but we don't. And um, you know, if it, it's not the fault, I've said this before, it's not the fault of the Democratic Party that Republican primary voters are, act like right. morons. Uh, it's the fault of right. those voters. Uh, we're gonna, yeah. look, we're gonna, we're gonna renominate Donald Trump. Uh, and it's, yes, the DeSantis campaign came out of the gate and screwed up, but ultimately this we're, is on Republican primary voters. Yeah, we're coming up on a break here. So I, I actually do want to return to Ron DeSantis when we come back from the break. And I, I want to ask the what went wrong question with Ron DeSantis, who seems like he had such a good opportunity to be a challenger to Donald Trump here. And it clearly has not panned out that way. We'll break that down when we are back on Beyond the Beltway. Eric Cohn filling in for Bruce Dumont. Goodbye, bench press. Adios, squat rack. Fare thee well, kettlebell. Hey, Kellen, need a spot? No, Jake from State Farm. I'm just saying goodbye to my pricey gym membership. What? Don't give up what you love. State Farm has options like insuring your home and ride with great rates on both. Nice. Hey, can I buy you a protein shake or a granola bar? Or... For surprisingly great rates, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Call or go to statefarm.com for a quote today. Going back to school as a working adult doesn't mean you have to sacrifice a high-quality education. Purdue University, a top 10 public university, took its innovative thinking to a new level when it created Purdue University Global for working adults. Discover innovative, practical ways to earn your degree online and advance your career. Purdue Global has already awarded more than 1 million credits for prior learning, which means you can save nearly half the cost of your bachelor's. See how close you are to finishing your degree at purdueglobal.edu. That's purdueglobal.edu. This is the story of a very special woman. In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician or an entrepreneur. Her knowledge was limitless and still is. She could also make monsters disappear, especially those that lurked in the shadows under the bed. Once, this woman put back together a teenage girl's broken heart, which had been shattered in a thousand pieces, just by giving her a bear hug. She masqueraded as a regular person at work, 
but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources, at aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. When it comes to vaping, the truth can get clouded. So let's make it clear. Vaping is not safe for kids, teens, or young adults. It's just not. Because vaping can put microscopic particles into your lungs. And dangerous things like metals and volatile organic compounds into your body. And nicotine, the same highly addictive substance found in regular cigarettes. Nicotine can harm a person's brain development through their mid-20s. Affecting learning, memory, attention, and impulse control. And priming the brain for other addictions. Vaping products also come in kid-friendly flavors that can make them appealing to youth. And many kids also use other drugs, like marijuana and vaping devices. With appealing flavors, high nicotine levels, and lots of promotion on social media. Many kids think vaping is harmless, but it's not. So talk to your kids about the risks of vaping. Because when you talk, they hear you. For more information, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. We're back on Beyond the Beltway. Eric Cohn filling in this week for Bruce Dumont. And we have reached the portion of the program where we allow our guests to introduce themselves to the audience. And we will start with Jonathan Greenberg. Uh, well, thanks, Eric. I am uh, Jonathan Greenberg. Uh, I am uh, an advisor to a private family uh, charitable foundation. Um, in my past life, I was the Midwest political director at APAC. I ran for the state legislature in 2012. I live in Highland Park uh, with uh, my dog and my kids. And uh, we will now go to our Democrat, Patrick Hanley. Thanks, Eric. Uh, similar to Jonathan, I live in north of Chicago uh, in Winnetka with my wife and 12-week-old baby. So that's been the excitement for our family the last few months. Um, thank you. We are we're just about sleeping through the night. Uh, and my wife and I own a uh, own and run a small business that sells linen bedding. Fantastic. And uh, first time guest making his maiden voyage on this program, my colleague here at the Acton Institute. And again, we are speaking for ourselves in this uh, program today, not for the Acton Institute. Dan Huger. Hey, thank you so much for having me on the program. Uh, my name is Dan Huger. I'm the librarian and a research associate at the Acton Institute, uh, born and raised in Grand Rapids. And here I shall remain because uh, God made Grand Rapids to train the faithful and no one could go against the will of God. Well, if that isn't a beautiful summation, I don't know what is. So thanks uh, to all three of you for joining me on the program uh, this week, as again, we were having this conversation just ahead of when you're hearing it air, uh, as it is airing on Christmas Eve. I want to return to the Republican primary, as I teased before the break. Dan, I want to start with you. As you look at the DeSantis campaign, what went wrong? This was, he was supposed to be the person who could, in the wake of everything that happened after the 2020 election, 
assuming, and this was maybe perhaps the wrong assumption that a lot of people made, that Donald Trump would be significantly damaged by what happened at the end of the 2020 uh, election and in that transition, he was supposed to be the person who could unite the factions, right? He was supposed to be the person who could bring people together, that he could get some of those people who liked what Donald Trump bought, brought to the Republican Party. He'd be Trumpy enough, but he would also be, you know, and I, I actually don't quite mean this in a pejorative way, but normal enough to bring back some of those traditional Republicans. And it really did not play out that way. What, in your opinion, happened here? I think the only explanation is that Governor DeSantis happened here. We had a Republican Party that was very excited about what he was doing in terms of policy in the state of Florida, both from a business, from a religious liberty, from a uh, COVID restrictions, on down the line. All of, you know, he got in with some legislation sort of carefully calibrated to sort of maximize his exposure as an anti-woke crusader um, and did that successfully polarized, but within the Republican Party, got a lot of people excited uh, about him for that. He had a lot of traditional Republican donors line up behind his campaign early. He was the only one that was really making serious financial uh, strides in early campaign fundraising. And he had an emerging sort of ideological faction within the conservative movement that was all on board for him. This is the, these are the national conservative folks. He was the keynote at their last convention. This is a group that was liked sort of the nationalism and populism that Donald Trump brought into the party, but they weren't very enthusiastic about Donald Trump. When I went down there to Orlando to their second meeting, they very much loved the policies. They was very keen to downplay President Trump as being the center of the movement. They looked, they, they were looking for someone else. They found him in Governor DeSantis, but none of those things panned out. And the only explanation that I've been able to come through to is that the more Republican primary voters got to look at Governor DeSantis, the more they weren't excited. And it wasn't about policy and it wasn't about fundraising. And I don't think it was really about ideology. I think it's just a charisma deficit. Whatever, pe whatever people have strong feelings about President Trump, but no one denies that he has a strong personality and that he is also genuinely funny. And he has taught the median Republican voter to like and appreciate that. So when they get a candidate that doesn't have that charisma, that doesn't have that humor, that, you know, you can't listen to ramble on for two hours and it not feel like you're listening to somebody ramble on for two hours, the difference is more striking than it's been in the past. Mm -hmm. The entertainment value is not there. And that's something that voters have always liked. President Clinton was a mesmerizing speaker. People enjoy that. He was a magnetic personality. And 
Governor DeSantis does not have that. And President Trump yeah. does. I, I, I think all that's true. But Jonathan, I'm, I'm curious for your perspective on this. It, I, I think there's something else at play, if not something that overwhelms that. And that is the makeup of the Republican primary electorate at this point. You essentially have 30 percent that are they're always Trump. Donald Trump is their guy. And then you have another, let's say, about 25 percent who are anti-Trump, that they want somebody other than Donald Trump to be the nominee. The problem is that you have a remainder there that is always Republican. So like they're just kind of fine with whoever the Republican nominee is going to be. They may have some preferences one way or the other in the primary. But if it seems like Trump is just going to be the victor, then fine, it's going to be Donald Trump. Did Ron DeSantis even really try to appeal to the right constituencies within the Republican primary? Because the early part of his campaign, to me, you could tell me if you think I'm wrong, it looked like he was trying to siphon votes away from the 30% that were pro-Trump that he didn't have as much of a chance to win over. And he did so neglecting both the anti-Trump and the always Republican categories in tailoring messages to them that would have been attractive to them that could have brought them into his camp. Yeah, I think there are two parts to this. One is the the mistake that the DeSantis campaign made and the other was the strategy, the truly disgraceful strategy to no one's surprise that the, the Trump campaign, but effective that the Trump campaign undertook about Ron DeSantis. Ron DeSantis was the only person they were worried about. He remains the only person that they care about. Um, and uh, DeSantis made a mistake right out of the gate, not going after Trump by name. Uh, you know, he tried, I would, I'm not sure he tried to siphon off votes from the always Trump crowd, but he tried to not upset them. He would attack Trump's record without attacking Trump. Um, and and uh, he can be vicious uh, when he's going after someone, but he wouldn't do it to Trump. He's, he's able to string together uh, these examples, his, his rhetoric is outstanding for a Republican primary. And he's able to string together these, these examples. He's a very smart man, but he would never do it at, directed right at Donald Trump. Uh, and so he wouldn't go after him uh, because he didn't want to upset the, the, the ride or die Trump cultists. And then the Trump campaign focused its fire on DeSantis, not on issues because they can't, because on issues that Republicans at least say that they care about, Don DeSantis, Ron DeSantis is much better, has a much better record in Florida than Trump had nationally. But uh, they went after him personally. They talked about how boring he was. They talked about his wife being a controlling shrew. They made fun of his children. They talked about how he's short and he's sensitive about it, so he wears high heels. They, I mean, it, and on and on and on with this personal nonsense, which is what Trump does. Uh, and, uh, you know, Dan is absolutely right. It's, it's, if you are a bread and circuses cretin, it's probably very entertaining. Um, if, on the other hand, you care about policy outcomes, you know, I don't really, I don't really need to be entertained by my presidential candidates. The, the fact of the matter is we have a problem on the American right uh, that a lot of people, a lot of our people are in a cult. And I've said it before on this program, and I'll say it again here. If there is nothing that Donald Trump could do to lose your support, you are not in a political party, you're in a religion. Patrick, again, I'm going to come to you for, uh, give, give me about a minute uh, of your album side here on, as you look at the Republican Party, and again, understanding that there's no interest that the Democrats necessarily have to have in wanting the Republican Party to be better. Um, would you have more fear going up against Ron DeSantis than Donald Trump? Or does the 
the framing that I gave you earlier that these are the two candidates that are so bad enough they could lose to the other one mean that yeah. it's a better opportunity going against Trump? No, I would say, and I, one thing that I think Daniel touched on earlier, but I want to kind of reiterate is that one of the one of the fatal flaws of the DeSantis campaign is DeSantis the campaigner and DeSantis the candidate. It really doesn't seem like he enjoys what he's doing. It doesn't seem like he respects the voters that he's trying to win over. And that's so plainly apparent. And that charisma contrast and personality contrast would be even brighter with a Joe Biden who's the happy warrior who genuinely loves this stuff. Uh, and so I think that's why I wouldn't be too worried about a DeSantis campaign. I think he's not cut out for this at the national level. I don't think he's particularly talented uh, politician, regardless of how you know intelligent Jonathan might think that he is. Um, and then I guess to the point that Jonathan was circling earlier, I just don't know that Republican primary voters care very much about policy relative to the excitement, charisma, and personality of Donald Trump, this you know unfortunate, once in a generation, awful figure yeah. in American politics. Yeah, it 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 is uh, not the sunniest of positions for everyone to be in. And uh, when we come back from the break, I I I want both of you to talk about if the primary process is the culprit here, and what we might be able to do about that going forward. Eric Cohn filling in this week for Bruce Dumont on Beyond the Beltway. Going back to school as a working adult doesn't mean you have to sacrifice a high-quality education. Purdue University, a top 10 public university, took its innovative thinking to a new level when it created Purdue University Global for working adults. Discover innovative, practical ways to earn your degree online and advance your career. Purdue Global has already awarded more than 1 million credits for prior learning, which means you can save nearly half the cost of your bachelor's. See how close you are to finishing your degree at purdueglobal.edu. That's purdueglobal.edu. At Jersey Mike's, you can elevate any sub by getting the juice. Red wine, vinegar, and an olive oil blend. It's how a Jersey Mike sub gets its exquisite zing and how bites get boosted. The juice adds a certain something extra, an exclamation on top of the freshly sliced meats and toppings, the kind of exclamation you can eat. Order Jersey Mike subs on our mobile app and get delivery right to your home or pick up from your nearest Jersey Mike sub location. Jersey Mike's, be a sub above. I'll be here to hear what's on your mind. Kids want to share what's going on in their lives with the adults around them. Parents, grandparents, teachers, coaches, and more. They want to know you're listening, and they want to listen to you. They want your input and guidance, early and often, on all kinds of topics. When it comes to a serious subject like underage drinking, they want to know your expectations as well as how and why, as a young person, they should avoid alcohol. How you talk about it will change as your child grows, but the important thing is to talk about it. Not just once for an hour when you think the time is right, but in 60 one-minute conversations and more that are part of your everyday talks. For more information about talking with your kids about underage use of alcohol and other drugs, visit underagedrinking.samhsa.gov. One in three adults has pre-diabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man, you, your dog walker, 
your cat jogger. While one in three adults has prediabetes, with early diagnosis, prediabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. Wait, did they just say one in three adults has prediabetes? That's 33.33333% of adults. That means it could be me, my boss, or my boss's boss, or me, my favorite sister, or my other sister. That's seven members of my 21-person romantic book club. <gasps> Wait, the one in three could be me, my karaoke partner Carol, or ugh, my karaoke enemy Jeff. I'm going to take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. Eric Cohn filling in this week for Bruce Dumont on Beyond the Beltway. And I'm going to go to you, Jonathan, with just a very simple and general question. Is the primary process in our national politics broken? Well, certainly on the Republican side it is, and I'll let Patrick answer for, for his side, but uh, certainly on the Republican side it is. I, I, I think that a, a hybrid system would be better where the, the smoke-filled room people are presenting uh, a, a smaller choice to the broader public. I think that would be better. Something like the UK does with uh, prime ministerial candidates where the the members of the house of commons uh, from that party get to present a couple of finalists uh, to the membership and the membership then elects from from that group of finalists we used to have a hybrid system uh, up until i think the the 70s even we had a, a hybrid system where uh, some of it was decided at the convention and some of the delegates were decided in primaries and at some point we moved over to entirely uh, everything being primary driven the, the, the problem with that is that you, the same problem that you have in, um, in districts all around the country, which is you end up with more extreme candidates who have trouble with crossover appeal. Um, I, I'm much more from the Ronald Reagan school of, uh, you know, somebody who's my 80% ally is not my 20% enemy. Uh, and I, I think that if you want to, I, I think if you want to win, you have to present from my side, the most conservative possible candidate who can win. And that's what we're about. Parties are supposed to be about winning elections, not the, I'm a conservative. I'm into ideology and philosophy. That's not the job of the party. The job of the party is to put forward a candidate who's as aligned as possible, who can win. And our party at least has completely forgotten about winning elections. We'd rather reinforce grievances and you know, put forward whoever Donald Trump likes. We lost. I don't. Even, I don't remember how many Senate seats in the last election because uh, you know candidates were awful, but Donald Trump liked them, or they were too far right in states where they shouldn't have been, and, and we lost races we shouldn't have. So I, I, it is certainly broken on in, in the for the Republicans, and I think there are fairly simple ways to fix it. Dan, same general question to you, but I, I want to add this, this context to it. it. The big fear, as I saw it from Republicans, was what they wanted to avoid was having the collective action problem that existed in the 2016 primary. And I heard a, from a lot of people, supposedly very smart, that I was like, no, we're not going to have the same problem. Yeah, a lot of people are going to get in, but it matters when they get out and people will be getting out. And you know what? Uh, as you pointed out, Asa Hutchinson still running, not real clear evidence that anybody sees the need to get out here. So is is 
Did the collective action problem come to fruition again for Republicans here? I mean, my read on it is is at least most state parties are in favor of President Trump. So there would be no incentive for the party to pressure President Trump's opponents to consolidate. I mean, this is this is the sort of thing is is this is far enough along in the process. 2016 was a long time ago. And there was a successful party capture at sort of all levels, like down to county levels all over. And it's and it was by, you know, most of this was Democratic. Like these are the folks who showed up Um, and you don't you don't go into the general election with the Republicans you wish you had, you go into the general election with the Republicans that you have. Now, it used to be that the parties had things like money and influence, and you had people that could, on the margins, position candidates, that sort of thing. But with campaign finance reform out the window with, you know, you even have, you know, the Democratic Party very famously had the whole, you know, had actual superdelegates. They had people in the party that the party decided, elected to serve as delegates as a sort of balance on this pure democratic system. And there was a lot of pushback against that. And I and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think they've gotten rid of the superdelegates in response to some of that criticism, um, or certainly they're not in the numbers that they used to be. So, so you see this you see this party influence eroding on all sides, um, and it's 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 very difficult to see outside of money being able to flow freely into mm-hmm. the political parties again um, in the way that it was prior to McCain-Feingold that the party can have any real influence. Yeah. Patrick, uh, briefly, your your perspective on that from the Democratic standpoint, how, how confident do you feel in the primary process in the Democratic Party going forward to put forward candidates who can win? Fine, but only because I have more confidence than I think my Republican or my conservative colleagues do in the Democratic primary electorate. Uh, the Democratic Party is a bit more moderate than the Republican Party. And so there's, uh, you know, folks like Joe Biden can get through. But I would say that uh, there are two major reforms that need to happen in primaries in both sides. Those include alternative vote, like ranked choice voting, so that candidates have to appeal to as many voters as possible rather than just one small sliver of the electorate. And second, we should be changing the election calendar dynamically. Like 10 states have an enormous disproportionate role in selecting the nominee of each party, uh, each presidential election year. And I think that's something that needs to change regularly so that each state gets a, a time at the bat and and candidates are then forced to go court voters in states they wouldn't have to otherwise. And that's really important. 
Yeah, certainly uh, it, it'll be interesting to see when there's an open primary again on the Democratic side, uh, what what that is going to look like with some of the tumult that happened, you know, going back to, to 2016 with uh, Bernie Sanders kind of unexpected successful uh, challenge of Hillary Clinton and then uh, the role that he's played. It, I, it's going to be interesting and there is going to be a lot to watch there and a lot more to discuss on the next hour of Beyond the Beltway when we are back. Eric Cohn filling in this week. For Bruce Dumont. Going back to school as a working adult doesn't mean you have to sacrifice a high-quality education. Purdue University, a top 10 public university, took its innovative thinking to a new level when it created Purdue University Global for working adults. Discover innovative, practical ways to earn your degree online and advance your career. Purdue Global has already awarded more than 1 million credits for prior learning, which means you can save nearly half the cost of your bachelor's. See how close you are to finishing your degree at purdueglobal.edu. That's purdueglobal.edu. Oh, goodbye, bench press. Adios, squat rack. Fare thee well, kettlebell. Hey, Kellen, need a spot? No, Jake from State Farm. I'm just saying goodbye to my pricey gym membership. What? Don't give up what you love. State Farm has options like insuring your home and ride with great rates on both. Nice. Hey, can I buy you a protein shake or a granola bar? Or... For surprisingly great rates, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Call or go to statefarm.com for a quote today. At Jersey Mike's, you can elevate any sub by getting the juice. Red wine vinegar and an olive oil blend. It's how a Jersey Mike sub gets its exquisite zing and how bites get boosted. The juice adds a certain something extra, an exclamation on top of the freshly sliced meats and toppings, the kind of exclamation you can eat. Order Jersey Mike subs on our mobile app and get delivery right to your home or pick up from your nearest Jersey Mike sub location. Jersey Mike's, be a sub above. Why was the basketball court all wet? Because the players kept dribbling on it. The dad joke. <laughs> Corny, groan-worthy, but also one of the simplest ways to share a moment with your kids. What did the buffalo say when he dropped his son off for school? Bye, son. <laughs> so take a moment to make your kid laugh, because dad jokes rule. Make your kid laugh today. Go to fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Matthew. Huh? Oh, sorry. It's okay. I just need you to listen to me. I know that a lot of times, Mom, it might not seem like I'm listening to you, but I am. I hear you. And what you say really does matter to me. I mean, let's be honest. No kid likes rules, but I get why we have them. I hear you, and I know it's because you care. All the talks we've had over the years including what you've told me about not using alcohol and other drugs, they stick with me. And believe it or not, they really do make a difference, especially at times that matter most. Hey, want a drink? No thanks, I'm good. So thank you, Dad, for talking and preparing me for what's ahead. Thanks, Mom, for never giving up and always being my biggest fan. Thank you for letting me know what you expect so I can try to meet your expectations. Thank you for talking. For more information about talking with your kids about underage use of alcohol and other drugs, 
visit underagedrinking.samhsa.gov. Today, millions of people all across America are building a life in recovery from addiction and mental illness, helping themselves and helping each other with friends, family and community lending their strength and support. Join the voices for recovery. Together, we are stronger. For 24-hour free and confidential information and treatment referral for mental and substance use disorders, for you or someone you know, call 1-800-662-HELP. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Jill, why don't you tell the class what you did this weekend? Well, my dad and I went in search of some magical minnows and found a zillion of them in the stream from our lookout rock. Then my sister and I escaped from an evil slug king and went back to my super twig fort for safety. Then we told stories till it got dark and the Big Dipper led us all the way home. Where were you, Jill? We went to the forest. It's not that far away. Ask your parents to take you and your friends to the forest this week. It's closer than you think. Check out discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. We are back on hour number two of Beyond the Beltway. Eric Cohn filling in this week for Bruce Dumont. And I want to go back to the New York Times piece that I started the last hour with. Uh, We talked about the horse race numbers in the presidential election, but I want to turn our attention now to how people are perceiving the Israeli-Hamas war in Gaza. So going back to that New York Times piece again, Uh, Voters are sending decidedly mixed signals about the direction U.S. policymaking should take as the war in Gaza grinds into its third month, with Israelis still reeling from the October 7 terrorist attack, thousands of Palestinian deaths in Gaza, and the Biden administration trying to pressure Israel to scale back its military campaign. Nearly as many Americans want Israel to continue its military campaign as want it to stop now to avoid further civilian casualties. That split appears to leave the president with few politically palatable options. So, Patrick, what do you make of that in general? And what do you make particularly of the age divide that seems to be clear to me in the Democratic Party, where younger people are decidedly more on the Palestinian side of this question than older voters are on the Israeli side of this question. And how do you think that's going to settle out in your own party? Uh, Joe Biden is going to have to try to find a way to navigate this. Perhaps he just hopes that uh, the prospect of younger people thinking that the only other option in the race is uh, Donald Trump, uh, that they're obviously not going to vote for him. But I, I suppose you would have to worry about the possibility that a lot of those younger voters just decide that they aren't going to participate or they're going to cast a protest vote for a third party. You know, how, how do you think this is going to cash out when you try to settle this age gap and this opinion gap within the Democratic Party itself? Thanks, Eric, for uh, tossing that softball my way. The Israel-Palestine <laughs> conflict is and continues to be one of the most emotional and complicated and poorly understood conflicts in the world in terms of American politics. We drive ourselves nuts over the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and we have for decades. Uh, The last three months has just ramped that up in really almost unprecedented ways. And I think what you were seeing is an entire generation of younger folks uh, 
that are viewing the conflict with a new urgency and a new lens from the footage that they're seeing every day, both from October 7th, which was harrowing and terrifying, as well as from Gaza for the, the two months two months since. I think young people are, are furious with a righteous indignation at the level of death and about the indiscriminate killing uh, that has taken place over the last several months. And I think older voters are balancing that in their minds against the view of a special status that Israel has held for them and a special status that Israel plays geostrategically in the Middle East and in, in people's own personal histories. So it's an incredibly volatile and complicated situation in terms of the president's response. I'm very impressed. I'm very glad that politics has not driven foreign policy. I think you've got a lot of folks in the administration that are also horrified at the loss of life among civilians in Gaza, uh, but that are doing their damnedest to pressure the Netanyahu government with every lever the United States has to try and reduce that. And a public condemnation, public calls for ceasefire are not the way to go about that. So I've been impressed by the president's foreign policy response, but it's not winning him any political favors among younger Democrats. And, and I understand why. Jonathan, feel free to uh, swing at that pinata from whatever angle you would like to. But I'd also like to get your thoughts on uh, generally, and as, as somebody who's a conservative uh, and a former Republican, but not a Democrat, how you think Joe Biden has been handling this situation so far? Um, so let me start with um, something that I think is maybe an important bit of color commentary that I can provide. Um, I, Obviously, I care about the domestic politics of this, but at, at a more important level, I don't care what the domestic politics of this is. And I, let me tell you, neither do Israelis. Um, the, a, a couple of things that I think is really important for people to understand, and I think Americans generally don't understand this. Israel is not the United States. It's a separate country with a separate culture uh, it's a free country. Everybody has, you know, their own access to different sources of information. Um, it's, uh, you know, a, a country that has lots of problems. Uh, they argue amongst themselves. There's a, a strong left wing and a strong right wing in Israeli politics uh, on different issues than define the left and the right in America. It's a different country. And I have never seen the country so united as it is now. Another thing that's important to understand, this is not the American army going into Gaza. The Israeli army are the children of every single Israeli. I have two nieces and a nephew currently in the IDF. Every single child goes into the Israeli army. Every single one. Those are their children. So the fact that there is near total unanimity across the Israeli political spectrum the fact that overwhelmingly Israelis are willing to send their children in. It's a civilian army. They're willing to send their children in to do this. The fact that they're not going to stop. You can, if the U.S. doesn't veto something at the U.N., if the Biden administration orders them, if the Biden administration moves one or both of the carrier groups that we have in, in the region, they're not going to stop because for them, this is an issue of survival. You're free to disagree with that if you want to, but the people who live in the neighborhood, the people who consume this as local news, believe this to be an issue of survival. 
And the way they're conducting the war is the way they believe they need to conduct the war. War is really ugly. And we're not used to seeing things like the you know, Dresden levels of bombing that we saw throughout World War II. Thank God we didn't have TikTok and Twitter during World War II. We never would have had the stomach to finish the job. This is the way wars are won. You keep killing until the enemy is all dead. And Israel's going to keep going. I, I mean, I don't know how to tell people this. You can pull whatever you want. You can ask whatever, put whatever pressure you want in the Biden administration to do whatever, whatever you want to do. They're not, I'm telling you, they're not going to stop. I've never seen this before. Two other quick points. One, uh, the Netanyahu government is not running this war. They're not. The war cabinet is running the war. And the war cabinet consists, yes, of Netanyahu, he's the prime minister. It also consists of Yoav Gallant, who's the defense minister. But it also consists of, of, um, of uh, Benny Gantz, who's one of the opposition figures, probably the most, the most significant opposition figure. So it's a, it's a hybrid government that's making the decisions for the war cabinet. So when, when people say right-wing Netanyahu government, that's fine, but they're not the ones making war policy decisions, first of all. Second of all, uh, the, look, I, I'm not, I, I've never been a soldier. I'm not an expert on uh, munitions and tactics, and I'm not an expert on war. Um, but the IDF is. Uh, they know what they're doing. Uh, they're, it's, again, a civilian army commanded by a democratically elected government accountable to a free people. What we should do as a sister democracy yeah. is shut up and get out of their way. We will get Dan Huger back involved in this conversation when we come back from the break. I want to get his perspective on uh, this disconnect between older and younger people and how they view uh, this conflict and what that is going to mean for American politics moving forward when we are back on Beyond the Beltway. Eric Cohn filling in for Bruce Dumont. At Jersey Mike's, you can elevate any sub by getting the juice. Red wine vinegar and an olive oil blend. It's how a Jersey Mike sub gets its exquisite zing and how bites get boosted. The juice adds a certain something extra, an exclamation on top of the freshly sliced meats and toppings, the kind of exclamation you can eat. Order Jersey Mike subs on our mobile app and get delivery right to your home or pick up from your nearest Jersey Mike sub location. Jersey Mike's, be a sub above. Going back to school as a working adult doesn't mean you have to sacrifice a high-quality education. Purdue University, a top 10 public university, took its innovative thinking to a new level when it created Purdue University Global for working adults. Discover innovative, practical ways to earn your degree online and advance your career. Purdue Global has already awarded more than 1 million credits for prior learning, which means you can save nearly half the cost of your bachelor's. See how close you are to finishing your degree at purdueglobal.edu. That's purdueglobal.edu. Back on Beyond the Beltway, Eric Cohn filling in this week for Bruce Dumont. And as I promised, Dan, I want to come to you and tell, tell me what you make of, one, the polling data that I was talking about at the beginning of the last segment where you see the split, particularly in the Democratic Party, between old and young and uh, which side they are taking in this conflict. But talk in general as well, and I'll come back to both you, Jonathan, and Patrick uh, about this too. Uh, there was another poll, I believe it was a Harvard poll, 
um, that looked at uh, views of uh, how people viewed Israel in this conflict. And you see, again, younger people viewing Israel as an oppressor uh, and the Palestinians as being oppressed, which is influencing the way that they're viewing this conflict. So, uh, you know, Dan, I know uh, you have a special connection to the youngs. Um, how how are they viewing this conflict and, and why are their opinions on this uh, so different from their elders? So, I, you know, not to downplay my connection to the youngs, but I also have a connection to the olds. And as I was looking at this data, I was thinking of conversations that I had with my mother around the time of, oh boy, sometime that I was in college and there was something that had happened in Israel and we were talking about it on the news. And she talked about how when she was a child and, you know, this is a woman who was born in 1958, um, the notion that there was a Palestinian side that had any sort of moral legitimacy or any sort of legitimate grievances was just something that no, she remembers no one, none of her peers believing. Um, this was, you know, when Palestinians were in the news, they were terrorists, they were criminals without exception. So part of the reason that this disparity is so big is because her generation and older was profoundly, profoundly pro-Israel. I have an aunt who went in, you know, in the after uh, in the seventies after the Six Day War, went for the summer to work on a kibbutz. Like you had a different sort of conception of what this conflict was. What we're talking about when we're talking about young people is we're talking about people that their consciousness of this begins probably after Oslo and where there has always been in the media a representation of Palestinians as having legitimate grievances, as being potential partners in peace and having a sort of legitimacy that they hadn't in previous organizations. So part of this makes sense to me in just that these are people who were, grew up in radically different media environments and, in fact, radically different sort of political environments. Um, now, that's in America. And it is absolutely correct to say that the situation in Israel is very different. Every Israeli I know sees this conflict the way that uh, Jonathan unpacked it for us. Like, this is... The debate we're having in this country is not the debate that is happening in Israel right now. It is it is simply not. It's a different nation that has a different experience. And I think Joe Biden, I think there are a lot of people in the Democratic Party that believe, um, and I think there are some there are anti-Semitic elements on the right as well that believe that Israel somehow mm -hmm. pulls the strings. And that the, that it is it is in America's power to decide the fates of all in this conflict if they would just have the will to do it, and that is just not the case. Um, America can play and has played at various points in history a constructive role in Israel coming to peace with its neighbors and in hopefully a resolution to this long-running conflict between Israel and 
Palestine. However, this is not something that Joe Biden can do. And I think he's showing admirable. I think I think what he's demonstrating is savvy, because if you make demands that Israel will not even consider those demands alienate you and they and they minimize the little bit of influence that you do have and they sacrifice any potential constructive role that the United States could have in the future. Jonathan, again, feel free to react to any of that in general. But the same first question to you is how do you interpret this uh, age break in the way people are viewing this conflict? And as somebody, um, you know, who is uh, on the Israeli side uh, of this divide, um, how how do you feel about that? I mean, what is you know, what frightens you? What um, do you think is being overblown in the analysis we see or the data we see? of how young people think about this conflict. So the um, the Harvard-Harris poll that came out showing 67% of 18 to 24-year-olds view Jews, not Israelis. This was a, a Jews as oppressors. Um, I have some questions about the methodology and the wording of the question. I think there are better uh, polls out there that uh, show that number lower, but it's still too high. It's concerning. Um, there's been a surge of anti-Semitism on the left and the right. Uh, I've been saying for years that anti-Semitism on the left was uh, a problem and my uh, liberal co-religionists would deny it um, because it was uncomfortable for them to confront it. Uh, I think now that perception also in the American Jewish community has changed. Uh, I, I think there will be huge cultural changes in the American Jewish community. I'm just not sure what those will be yet. Uh, the in terms of why young people feel this way, look, I think that there are um, sociocultural things at play there about the discomfort that we have with power, uh, especially military power, uh, with uh, the use of force, um, with uh, cheering for the un who is seen as and who cheers for the underdog. Uh, and there is a look, there's a clear power disparity between Israel and Hamas. Thank God, because if there wasn't, every day would be October 7th in Israel. Uh, and so the uh, you're you know when people said but the, you know this power disparity you're damn right there's a power disparity and thank God uh, the um, listen ultimately I think that uh, the the primary divide that you see in the people who drive this conversation are who you want to win I want Israel to win period I want Israel to win because if Israel doesn't win Israel ceases to exist uh, people on the other side want Israel to lose. But that doesn't mean, that's not the same thing as wanting a Palestinian state. Almost nobody cares about a Palestinian state. Almost nobody cares about the Palestinians. They don't care about Palestinian dead. They don't care about Palestinian injured. Otherwise there would have been marches and protests when Egypt demolished houses along a mile long stretch of their border with Gaza and displaced 70,000 Palestinians a few years ago. There would have been marches and protests when Assad was gassing with sarin gas, whole Palestinian villages in Syria. There weren't marches and protests because nobody cared about those people because Jews weren't killing them. So the, um, this isn't about the establishment of a Palestinian state. You either want Israel to win, which I do, or you want Israel to lose. And there are lots of reasons you might want Israel to lose, but most of the people who are driving the narrative on the other side just want Israel to lose. So the, uh, yeah, and, and they're very good at driving that narrative. So, uh, and we're not as good. I really don't agree, Jonathan. With the last, yeah, go for it. 
And I, I, I don't disagree with the substance of what you're saying, but I do disagree with how you frame it and the intentions you're projecting onto Israel's critics. I think young people want to figure out ways to untangle the hypocrisies of the past. And I know that's like a huge abstract thing to say, but I really think that's that's where it's coming from. It's a combination of seeing innocent people murdered, which is happening, killed. And as you said earlier, wars, gruesome wars, horrible. This is all true. And yet we're still confronted with the faces of people who are killed. And that's an incredibly, that's a horrible, uncomfortable thing. And wanting to, wanting deeply not to feel complicit in that sort of a thing. And so it's this kind of gut emotional reaction to the real politic that I think we've seen over the last 100, 150 years or so worth of foreign policy decision-making. And I do think that's going to have a substantive impact on the way that militaries and foreign policy thinkers think about decisions going forward. Was there a way that Israel could have acted that wouldn't have resulted in 20,000 people dying in, in you know, 13,000 women and children dying? I, I think it's possible. I think it's possible. As you said, you know, uh, the IDF knew what they were doing and who are we to, to offer our perspective? And I, I think that's about right. But, um, no, I think in, in an interconnected world that is driven in the way that it is by social media and by emotion, that is going to substantively change the way that we view foreign policy going forward. And that's that's going to be a major change. I think there's a, there's a, a thin line between malice and ignorance. And at some point, it doesn't matter whether you're being malicious or ignorant. Uh, the people you're describing, I have no doubt, exist. Uh, although I think their numbers are relatively small. Uh, but... Uh, they have no idea what they're talking about. They don't know anything about the conflict. They don't know anything about the cultures that they're talking about. They don't speak either of the languages involved. They have no idea what they're talking about. And they've decided very strongly that one side is right and the other side is wrong based on really flimsy perceptions. Uh, and and is this, those is this coming perceptions from Twitter? Are... Or is this conversations that you've had with people? No, it's, when you it's, talk I mean, to people it, in no, real it's, life. It's, it's, it's coming from... No, it's, it's coming from a career of professional expertise on the subject. I deal with this all the time professionally and have since I was ordained in 2006. So the, I, the, I, I, I think that uh, the, the, there is this belief, especially, and this is especially true on the left. The right hates Israel for other reasons. So I'm, I'm primarily interested in, the, and, and the right, that doesn't, have much of a policy impact on the political party of the American right. The the left uh, hates Israel for for different reasons. Uh, I, yeah. I think we have to. We're, go, we're, so. we're, yeah, we are we are coming up on a break, so I, I do want to continue to unpack this on the other side of the break, and, and particularly get to the question of after so much conversation about anti-Semitism on the right uh, in 2015 and 2016, I especially want to get Patrick's reaction to the anti-Semitism we've seen from the left in uh, recent weeks. When we are back on Beyond the Beltway, Eric Cohn filling in for Bruce Dumont. Uh, goodbye, bench press. Adios, squat rack. Fare thee well, kettlebell. Hey, Kellen, need a spot? No, Jake from State Farm. I'm just saying goodbye to my pricey gym membership. What? Don't give up what you love. State Farm has options like insuring your home and ride with great rates on both. Nice. Hey, can I buy you a protein shake or a granola bar? Or... For surprisingly great rates, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Call or go to statefarm.com for a quote today.
Going back to school as a working adult doesn't mean you have to sacrifice a high-quality education. Purdue University, a top 10 public university, took its innovative thinking to a new level when it created Purdue University Global for working adults. Discover innovative, practical ways to earn your degree online and advance your career. Purdue Global has already awarded more than 1 million credits for prior learning, which means you can save nearly half the cost of your bachelor's. See how close you are to finishing your degree at purdueglobal.edu. That's purdueglobal.edu. This is the story of a very special woman. In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician or an entrepreneur. Her knowledge was limitless and still is. She could also make monsters disappear, especially those that lurked in the shadows under the bed. Once, this woman put back together a teenage girl's broken heart, which had been shattered in a thousand pieces, just by giving her a bear hug. She masqueraded as a regular person at work, but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources, at aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. When it comes to vaping, the truth can get clouded. So let's make it clear. Vaping is not safe for kids, teens, or young adults. It's just not. Because vaping can put microscopic particles into your lungs. And dangerous things like metals and volatile organic compounds into your body. And nicotine, the same highly addictive substance found in regular cigarettes. Nicotine can harm a person's brain development through their mid-20s. Affecting learning, memory, attention, and impulse control. And priming the brain for other addictions. Vaping products also come in kid-friendly flavors that can make them appealing to youth. And many kids also use other drugs, like marijuana, in vaping devices. With appealing flavors, high nicotine levels, and lots of promotion on social media. Many kids think vaping is harmless, but it's not. So talk to your kids about the risks of vaping, because when you talk, they hear you. For more information, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. This is Beyond the Beltway, and I am Eric Cohn, filling in for Bruce Dumont this week. And I want to pick up on actually a conversation we were having during the break. And uh, Dan, I want to come to you because I, I want you to share what you were just saying about uh, you said you subscribe to the New York Review of Books. Uh, tell, tell us what you were, were sharing with us during the break there. So one of the things I was sharing with with the group was, and I think this I think this resonates with a lot of what Jonathan was saying, is that, you know, Ever since October 7th, there has been column after column after column in very loaded language, very steady anti-Israel line, which is interesting because it's a literary magazine. It's not, you know, it's not, you know, this is not as if this was a magazine that was, uh, dedicated to, to advancing the Palestinian cause, which you would might maybe expect this. But it's like and it and it and it's very, very similar. And to the point where, you know, another another publication I subscribe to, the Paris Review, they had like a b- best books of the year sort of roundup of the staff doing. 
And there was literally a member of the staff that took a paragraph to just berate Israel rather than to recommend a book to the readers, which is the occasion for this column. And it's just like in, in at least certain quarters of the American left, it has become sort of pathological, not merely a difference of opinion, but but the, there's something that's that's really pathological that's taken hold of the imagination of at least some portion of the American left. I think there's something interesting there, and, and Patrick, I want to get your response to especially the last thing that uh, Dan had said there. Um, but there is something that's interesting to me, and, and for people who listen to the uh, Act and Unwind podcast, know that I have a bingo card for that. And when I mention Yuval Levin, you get to cross off a, a square on the bingo card. But this is in keeping with like Yuval Levin's analysis of how institutions and the purpose that they're supposed to serve have been lost as they all become platforms for people to talk about the exact same things. And I, I find that interesting in this, you know, these literary magazines. Uh, you know, the New York Review of Books being one, that it all becomes about Israeli-Palestinian conflict politics. Hmm. Uh, but I feel free to respond to uh, to anything that Dan had to say there. Gosh, that's fascinating. And I do want to keep us on, on Israel, but that makes me think of our collapsing identities in general and how we base all of our opinions now on this kind of fictional national partisan war, uh, whether they be about food we like, drinks we enjoy, or movies we watch. I mean, everything is kind of collapsing in on itself, and that's kind of a different conversation, but it's really important. Um, no, it's all culture war all the way down. Okay, exactly. Let me preempt something that I think we're going to talk about next, and that is uh, that is anti-Semitism. And I think we touched on it a little bit in the last segment, but anti-Semitism obviously is a huge problem on the right. Jews will not replace us. We've watched the videos, all these things. And what we are seeing now in the last two months uh, uh, my Jewish friends and colleagues and and others that care about the issue is that that's it exists on the left. It absolutely exists on the left. And I think that's because there is a deep reservoir of anti-Jewish, anti-Semitic tropes in the culture. Like it's in the water to an extent. And that's hundreds of years worth of European history baked in. There was somebody that mentioned how um, anti-Semitism is only is a is a shallow dig away from the surface at all times or some some derivation of that quote and i think the sad truth is that we've we've come up against that now we've seen that but i will say and you know it bears repeating in every radio show every podcast every tv clip we must separate the issue of israel from the issue of anti-semitism they there must be a line drawn somewhere because conflating the actions of a state even in self-defense, cannot be attributed to a, a people, an incredibly diverse people all over the world. Jonathan, give me your thoughts on that. I mean, to, to what extent can, do you think we can make that delineation between um, criticism of the state of Israel and the way that it's conducting itself, either in terms of its national politics or in the way that it's conducting itself in a war, uh, and the uh, distinction that Patrick is making here between that and anti-Semitism. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's a tough line to draw because uh, there's a difference, obviously, between the actions of a particular government that I don't vote for and don't pay taxes to. Therefore, my responsibility for it is limited. Um, and the ideology of Zionism, which is, you know, fundamental to Judaism. Um, and I'm, I'm happy to go into that if you guys want me to bore you with it, but it, there, there is no separating Zionism and Judaism. They're, one is a part of the other. Uh, and attempts by activists to separate those two things uh, is, is wish casting. 
Um, and I say that both as not just as a, somebody who's pro-Israel, but as a rabbi, the, the two things are not separable. Um, but the government is a different story. And so really it, it, it's not whether or not you're critical, it's, it's how you're critical uh, and whether your criticism is consistent uh, across the ideological lines that you yourself draw. So I, I, agree with, I agree with Patrick that I don't want to be held responsible for everything Israel does. I don't vote for the Israeli government. Um, but at the same time, my Zionism is not separable from my Judaism. So that, I guess that's how I would, I would address that. I, look, I, I think that um, Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs talked about anti-Semitism as uh, a genetic condition in human beings, that it's not something that is that can be gotten rid of uh, and that it, it it sometimes it's in remission in some cultures in some places in some times uh but it that when it is in remission it is only in remission it's not uh, eradicated and uh i i i've been saying that that's the jewish condition it has been for thousands of years uh and we believed i think a lot of us believed that it was um eradicated in the united states uh, I think that was silly, and I've been saying so my entire career, that that's not Jewish history. Uh, it's wishful thinking. Um, and I think on October, 7th, uh, October 8th and after, a lot of my co-religionists on the left woke up to the fact that uh, it's much more of a problem than they thought it was in their own political camp with their own political allies. There's going to be quite a bit of reassessing alliances after this. Uh, because uh, there's a lot of fear out there now. I, look, I, I think that uh, some of the fear is warranted and some of it's overblown, but there's a lot of fear out there. I, I hear you know, people at synagogue talking about pogrom levels of hatred uh, that they're feeling in their own political camps. Uh, and I look, the, the anti-Semitism I've always encountered on the right, personally encountered, uh, there's definitely violent anti-Semitism on the right. There always has been. And that's what, that's the anti-Semitism most of us think about, Nazis, right? Right-wing anti-Semitism. The anti-Semitism that I've encountered actually in conservative spaces has always been ignorant. Um, what we're seeing on the left is an anti-Zionism that has, that has certainly moved over into anti-Semitism. We're seeing street attacks. We're seeing attacks against Jewish uh, targets, Jewish restaurants, Jewish you know, religious facilities. Um, and, uh, you know, marches with horrible slogans, um, and it's all on video. So the, it, it is, it's, look, it's a worrying time. Uh, I would be lying to you if I didn't worry. And what I always say on Twitter, I will end here with, uh, buy guns, buy ammo, train, carry, and do it now. Patrick, I, I want to throw it back to you uh, and kind of put this question to you that in the sense, you know, as somebody from the left, you know, you, you can be with our short attention spans and short memories, a victim of chronology here. But, you know, everybody who lived through the period of 2016 through 2020, who remembers what's happened, what happened in Charlottesville and the left's reaction to that being horrified. And I, I would note, too, plenty of people on the right who were also horrified by, by what happened there. Um, and then you see what is happening now that really it was it was October 8th that you started to see people out in the streets um, under the banner of being pro-Palestinian, um, which I think you, you obviously I think you can be without being pro-Hamas. Yes. So there certainly were pro-Hamas yes. people who were uh, often at the forefront of a lot of those marches. Um, but you know, I, I'm, I'm curious what your reaction is to your fellow 
colleagues on the left who after being so condemnatory of what happened in Charlottesville were the day after a pogrom uh, joining a march in favor of the side in some senses at least that executed the pogrom. It's incredibly complicated, isn't it? I, 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 I hear the spirit of the question. I don't think it's complicated that, at all. That, no, 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 Jonathan, it is. Because a lot of the folks, a lot of my colleagues on the left, a lot of my colleagues in the middle are horrified by what they've been seeing in the the airstrikes across by the leveling of several cities with 2 million people, 1.x million people displaced in this, this frankly horrible place they've been living for about 20 years ever since the, the blockade started. So I understand where the empathy is coming from. I think we all do and we all should. And people are seeing that and they're terrified. I mean, after being horrified by what happened on October 7th, after being devastated by the enormous and awful, brutal attack on Israel, my next thought was terror for what was going to happen to Gazans, which I think has frankly been borne out. And if you don't have an empathetic response to that, especially when you see it in the news every day, I mean, I think you've got to question that too. Like, I, I see where this is coming from. The job now of Democrats is to turn to our peers and help them walk through the complication of the conflict and the untangling of the conflict in their minds and to give them the context to understand why we are Israel's ally, why we support them, and the con con connection between the conflict and anti-Semitism at home. That's the hard work. I we are uh, we are close up on a break here, and I do want, uh, Jonathan, because I know you said in your opinion that this is not complicated. I want you to give your view of why you think it is uh, not complicated and to push back on, on Patrick's take there when we are when we are back after the break for the final segment of this program uh, as we move into uh, the Christmas holiday. Thank you for spending your Christmas Eve with us. Uh, and we will be back after this break to continue uh, a very interesting conversation. We'll get Dan Huger back into his, with his perspective as well. Eric Cohn filling in for Bruce Dumont on Beyond the Beltway. Going back to school as a working adult doesn't mean you have to sacrifice a high-quality education. Purdue University, a top 10 public university, took its innovative thinking to a new level when it created Purdue University Global for working adults. Discover innovative, practical ways to earn your degree online and advance your career. Purdue Global has already awarded more than 1 million credits for prior learning, which means you can save nearly half the cost of your bachelor's. See how close you are to finishing your degree at purdueglobal.edu. That's purdueglobal.edu. At Jersey Mike's, you can elevate any sub by getting the juice. Red wine vinegar and an olive oil blend. It's how a Jersey Mike sub gets its exquisite zing and how bites get boosted. The juice adds a certain something extra, an exclamation on top of the freshly sliced meats and toppings. The kind of exclamation you can eat. Order Jersey Mike's subs on our mobile app and get delivery right to your home or pick up from your nearest Jersey Mike's sub location. Jersey Mike's, be a sub above. I'll be here to hear what's on your mind. Kids want to share what's going on in their lives with the adults around them. Parents, grandparents, teachers, coaches, and more. They want to know you're listening, and they want to listen to you. They want your input and guidance, early and often, on all kinds of topics. 
When it comes to a serious subject like underage drinking, they want to know your expectations, as well as how and why as a young person they should avoid alcohol. How you talk about it will change as your child grows, but the important thing is to talk about it. Not just once for an hour when you think the time is right, but in 60 one-minute conversations and more that are part of your everyday talks. For more information about talking with your kids about underage use of alcohol and other drugs, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. One in three adults has prediabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man, you, your dog walker, your cat jogger. While one in three adults has prediabetes, with early diagnosis, prediabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. Wait, did they just say one in three adults has prediabetes? That's 33.33333% of adults. That means it could be me, my boss, or my boss's boss, or me, my favorite sister, or my other sister. That's seven members of my 21-person romantic book club. <gasps> Wait, the one in three could be me, my karaoke partner Carol, or ugh, my karaoke enemy Jeff. I'm going to take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. We are back on Beyond the Beltway, the final segment of the program this evening. Uh, Eric Cohn filling in for Bruce Dumont. Uh, before we hit the break, uh, Patrick had been saying that this is uh, a complicated issue. Jonathan, you disputed that, that you don't think it is all that complicated. Uh, go ahead and, and unpack that for us. Yeah, so I don't believe the conflict is complicated at all, but I understand why some people do. So I'll skip over that and go to what I was actually talking about, which is Israel's response to October 7th. It's really very simple. Um, Hamas needs to be destroyed. You can't live next door to an empowered Hamas. You can't. And th they've already promised that they'll do this. They have to be destroyed. They choose to hide behind their civilians, leaving Israel no choice if they have to be destroyed, but to go through those civilians. There's no choice. If Israel had a choice, they wouldn't make that choice. But it's actually very simple. Hamas chooses to embed itself among its people, its people to hide behind women and children, like birds, and Israel has to go through those people to get to Hamas. That's what's going to happen. And believe me when I tell you, the Israeli left. Yeah, so I, I, I think that it, I, uh, I think that uh, you cannot live next to Hamas. Uh, Hamas hides behind women and children. Therefore, Israel, in order to not live next to Hamas, is going to have to go through those women and children. That's what they're going to do because it has to be done. I think it's relatively simple. Dan, uh, give me your reaction of what both Patrick and, and Jonathan have said here. Is this is this a complicated conflict? Is this a simple conflict? Is it somewhere in between? So I think I think this is a conflict that unfortunately is is one that our perceptions of it are influenced by a pervasive anti-Semitism worldwide. And I say this not because there aren't grave moral questions that should be adjudicated. But the fact that, you know, 
in November of this year, Pakistan has started expelling over a million Afghan refugees back to Afghanistan, held by the Taliban. There has not been the sort of outcry. There have not been the sort of proposed UN resolutions of condemnation. There has not been the sort of international pressure. And the question is, is why is that different? I would understand why, for instance, Palestinians and Jews would have a special stake in this issue above the issue that's going on in Afghan Afghanistan and Pakistan. What I can't understand is how seemingly millions of people in the broader world seemed drawn to moral grandstanding on this particular conflict um, that has a particularly strident tone that we don't see with other issues. And I think that is because this is unfortunately colored by anti-Semitism. And I think that's why you see those sorts of disparities in the sort of conversations we have about this issue versus other pressing international issues that have huge humanitarian implications and why you see it resonate in our politics at such a different level. And not just not just American politics. This was an issue with Jeremy Corbyn in Britain and is part of why he no longer leads the Labour Party. It is it infects not just Middle Eastern politics, where it certainly does in many parts of the Arab world, but it affects politics in Europe in this insidious way. And I think it affects what we're seeing is it affects politics at at least some levels in America, like uh, under those same sorts of circumstances. But one of the things that keeps triggering this anti-Semitism, particularly on the left, are bad faith actions by right wing politicians in Israel. Netanyahu has scuttled several peace deals personally, and he has kept Hamas alive and thriving. And Jonathan, from a strategic perspective, if you think this current offensive on Palestinians displacing upwards of two million people from their houses and killing many of them, uh, if you think that is going to make Hamas less popular, I think you're living in another world. I think Hamas comes out of this more popular. The ideology behind Hamas becomes interesting to people for whom it wouldn't be. And I think this extends the conflict in a really horrific way for much longer than it would if Israel were able to take a breath and surgically kill every Hamas leader in a similar way to the United States did with ISIS over the last several years. Now, taking a step back, I hear you. There was no way the United States was not going to invade Afghanistan after 9-11. It just wasn't going to happen. And so I do understand that Israel had to act dramatically, and they have. Your, your invocation of, and I'll turn it over to Jonathan in the last uh, few moments we have here for his reaction to that, but you know, in going in and taking out ISIS, you know, we, we leveled Raqqa, we leveled Mosul. You know, that There were a lot of the things that we're talking about that happened uh, also happened there. It's just that, again, there's a moral grandstanding that comes along with this particular conflict that doesn't apply to those others. Jonathan, I'll give you the last word on this as we come to a close. Yeah, so um, I, I, I haven't been a fan of Bibi Netanyahu's entire career. Uh, I think he talks like Churchill and acts like Chamberlain. I think that he's uh, largely irresponsible and corrupt. I think that he's primarily interested in keeping power for himself and doesn't really care very much about the country. And all of that throat clearing aside, um, he's right that there can't be a Palestinian state because we don't exist in fantasy land. That Palestinian state has to exist on the ground and Israelis have to be able to live next to it. And since the Second Intifada, 
Israelis are convinced that any state next to it will be an existential threat to Jewish life. So whether or not we would like that to be the outcome, whether or not we think that would be the ideal outcome, yeah. in the real world, there can't be one. Yeah, we, we're going we're gonna to have to leave it there because we have come to the end of the program this evening. And I want to thank Jonathan Greenberg. I want to thank Patrick Hanley. And I want to thank Dan Huger for being a part of this program, especially, you know, we're taping it early, but it'll air on Christmas Eve. So with, uh, with that said, I hope everybody has had a lovely Christmas Eve and will have an absolutely lovely Christmas as you celebrate that with your family. Or perhaps in Jonathan's case, go out for Chinese food because we all know it's the one day that none of us, you know, the Christians are out and uh, you got the whole place to yourself. So I hope everybody <laughs> enjoys it. I hope you've enjoyed the program. Uh, Eric Cohn filling in this week for Bruce Dumont on Beyond the Beltway. From Beyond the Beltway, Merry Christmas to you and yours. Going back to school as a working adult doesn't mean you have to sacrifice a high-quality education. Purdue University, a top 10 public university, took its innovative thinking to a new level when it created Purdue University Global for working adults. Discover innovative, practical ways to earn your degree online and advance your career. Purdue Global has already awarded more than 1 million credits for prior learning, which means you can save nearly half the cost of your bachelor's. See how close you are to finishing your degree at purdueglobal.edu. That's purdueglobal.edu. Oh, goodbye, bench press. Adios, squat rack. Fare thee well, kettlebell. Hey, Kellen, need a spot? No, Jake from State Farm. I'm just saying goodbye to my pricey gym membership. What? Don't give up what you love. State Farm has options like insuring your home and ride with great rates on both. Nice. Hey, can I buy you a protein shake or a granola bar? Or... For surprisingly great rates, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Call or go to statefarm.com for a quote today. At Jersey Mike's, you can elevate any sub by getting the juice. Red wine, vinegar, and an olive oil blend. It's how a Jersey Mike sub gets its exquisite zing and how bites get boosted. The juice adds a certain something extra, an exclamation on top of the freshly sliced meats and toppings, the kind of exclamation you can eat. Order Jersey Mike's subs on our mobile app and get delivery right to your home or pick up from your nearest Jersey Mike's sub location. Jersey Mike's, be a sub above. Why was the basketball court all wet? Because the players kept dribbling on it. The dad joke. <laughs> Corny, groan-worthy, but also one of the simplest ways to share a moment with your kids. What did the buffalo say when he dropped his son off for school? Bye, son. <laughs> so take a moment to make your kid laugh, because dad jokes rule. Make your kid laugh today. Go to fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Matthew. Huh? Oh, sorry. It's okay. I just need you to listen to me. I know that a lot of times, Mom, it might not seem like I'm listening to you, but I am. I hear you. And what you say really does matter to me. I mean, let's be honest. No kid likes rules, but I get why we have them. I hear you, and I know it's because you care. All the talks we've had over the years including what you've told me about not using alcohol and other drugs, they stick with me. And believe it or not, they really do make a difference, especially at times that matter most. Hey, want a drink? No thanks, I'm good. So thank you, Dad, for talking and preparing me for what's ahead. Thanks, Mom, for never giving up and always being my biggest fan. Thank you for letting me know what you expect. 
so I can try to meet your expectations. Thank you for talking! For more information about talking with your kids about underage use of alcohol and other drugs, visit underagedrinking.samhsa.gov. Today, millions of people all across America are building a life in recovery from addiction and mental illness, helping themselves and helping each other with friends, family and community lending their strength and support. Join the voices for recovery. Together, we are stronger. For 24-hour free and confidential information and treatment referral for mental and substance use disorders, for you or someone you know, call 1-800-662-HELP. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Jill, why didn't you tell the class what you did this weekend? Well, my dad and I went in search of some magical minnows and found a zillion of them in the stream from our lookout rock. Then my sister and I escaped from an evil slug king and went back to my super twig fort for safety. Then we told stories till it got dark and the Big Dipper led us all the way home. Where were you, Jill? We went to the forest. It's not that far away. Ask your parents to take you and your friends to the forest this week. It's closer than you think. Check out discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council.